it's surprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest escapes these days. This representation of Star Brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today is a show that I just could not wait to record. Talking with Jay Hewitt, this guy is absolutely amazing. Just simply amazing. He uh, grew up in a very troubled, as you'll hear, very troubled uh, household, had a very difficult uh, time in his young life, uh, really turned it around in his teenage years, is now a pastor at, uh, at Friends Church in Orange, California, and roughly five years ago, four, four years ago now, uh, he was diagnosed uh, with a brain tumor. And as you'll hear, a lot of stuff has happened since then. And this man is just simply remarkable. His passion, his energy, his um, stick-to-itiveness, right? His resolve, all of this stuff. He's just he's just a fantastic, amazing person. Shout out to Natalie Sanger, a uh, former guest here on the show, recommended me, recommended him to me. Um, and I'm so glad that she did because this episode was great. Uh, go follow Jay if you're not doing so already. He's Jay Hewitt. That's J-A-Y-H-E-W-I-T-T. And um, man, I'm just like, I'm just gushing right now because I can't wait for you to listen to this. I mean, you already are listening to it. You're going to hear it in a second. There's really no reason for me to go on and on. I just can't help myself. Because this man is extraordinary, he is motivational, he's aspirational, and in a second, you're going to hear why. So thank you so much for listening, and let's dive into it. Hello, Jay, and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure, Jay. I've loved following you for a little while now. One of my previous guests and someone who I'm in regular contact with, Natalie Sanger, uh, recommended you recommended that I basically reach out to you a couple months ago because she thought you'd be wonderful for the show. Ever since then, I've dived into so many of the things that you have put out um, just you know, in a variety of different ways, whether it's social media, YouTube, or what have you. And it's just such a pleasure to have you on the show. Before we dive into just the various, the, the very things that are happening in your life. Before we get there, there's one thing that is kind of common, kind of a common thread amongst all the things that I've seen of yours. And that's just this, this general uplifting positivity that you have, that you exude. Was that something for you that you've had to cultivate over time? Or is that something that, you know, if I knew five-year-old Jay, that that was just part of uh, his deal? Yeah, you know, I've uh, I've always had a big smile on my face. I've always been a very positive person. Uh, I think a lot of it comes from my childhood. I had a very difficult childhood, raised in a very chaotic home. And as a way of dealing with that, I think uh, I learned resiliency through positivity. Now, I've had to temper that over the years of making sure that I don't neglect uh, uh, acknowledging the difficulties in life and uh, facing those head on as well. But Overall, positivity has served me very well, and I've learned to use it to overcome things in my life and to help others as well, to inspire and, and give hope for others that are searching for it. Oftentimes, negativity is met by negativity, right? So if we see someone being negative, oftentimes it puts us into a negative state and we exude something similar on our own end. What do you think was unique about you in a sense that you took a kind of the opposite approach? Well, uh, like I said, I think at first it started as a somewhat of a coping mechanism uh, just to deal with 
the chaos in the home and make sense of uh, my childhood. But uh, when I was a teenager, uh, I started going down a very different path. There was uh, a lot of anger in my life, a lot of negativity that I just couldn't escape. And I wasn't raised in a religious home at all. Uh, but during that time, I had some friends invite me to church. And that's when I heard about a hope that I never heard of before. And I uh, learned about love that I'd never been exposed to. And as I put my faith into Jesus, I was then exposed to a whole different uh, spiritual family of mentors that approached life differently and a new purpose in life and a new, a new reason for um, having hope and, and holding on to that hope. And so that was a major changing point uh, in my life as a high school student. And that has been my, my guiding light ever since. Now, high school students the world over, you know, I, I think are can be seen as, you know, in a, a age where many of them can be skeptical of people telling them what to do or of, you know, structures within society, right? You see a lot of people will be rebellious uh, in one way or another. It sounds like you approached your introduction to church with an open mind. Obviously, prior to that day, you were well aware of church. Right. I mean, there was, wasn't like a new concept, so to speak. Maybe it was a new introduction for you. So when you were invited to go, when you first went, what was was your guard up? Did you approach it wholeheartedly? What was that situation like? <laughs> well, for me, I had uh, two good friends. Uh, my best friends were the ones that invited me. So I think when you have people that uh, you like invite you, you go in uh, with a little more open mind. But their, their hook for getting me there was just telling me, hey, Hey, come to our church. We've got a bunch of cute girls there. And so that, that got me in. <laughs> um, but then honestly, the, the more I, I learned and, and looked into things, it may have been a rebellion against my parents because uh, it wasn't just that I was aware of the church, but in, in my household, that my especially my father was very skeptical uh, to the church and, and uh, the powers of religion and, and uh, anti in a lot of ways. And so maybe there is a part of me that just, you know, uh, was looking for a different path than my parents. And so I had a, a positive rebellion uh, at the point where I was almost going to go down a very negative rebellion path. That is interesting. It's, it's, it's funny how when you talk about rebellion, you know, it can be so many different things. You know, and there's so many structures in our lives, whether it's external or internal or familial or you know, within our community and neighborhood. So I guess there, there is not this one overarching structure for so many people, right? There are so many different varied paths and certain ways that you, one can be rebellious. You know, in, in you know, when I say rebellious, that kind of has a negative kind of connotation. Right. It doesn't right. have to be. It can no. just be counter to what has already been established. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one of the things that uh, drew me to Jesus is he was he was rebellious against the current religious structure, and I liked that about him. Um, and then you know th this has just continued to to play out in my life of of wanting to uh, stand up for the oppressed and and to seek justice for people who aren't aren't getting it. And then even down to my personal life of being diagnosed with a brain tumor and uh, then brain cancer and given a very negative prognosis, uh, I just in, in my soul wanted to rebel against that and say, no, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be this way. 
um, I can I can do all that I can uh, to have a different outcome. And I don't need to just accept the the first prognosis that's given to me. In your faith, if some for people who know you uh, already know this, or people who don't, uh, they're learning now is central to your life. And when did that process really crystallize? Uh, pretty quickly after I put my faith in Jesus as a high school student, because um, it, it really was an all or nothing thing for me. It uh, in my household, you couldn't just survive being lukewarm. Um, and so very early on, I, I realized this has got to be central to who I am. And uh, I let it be my new guiding uh, light for how to live life. Um, because I had to unlearn a lot of negative uh, traits and a lot of uh, unhealthy coping mechanisms. And so, yeah, when I, when I put my trust into Jesus, I really, I remember my, my prayer was, all right, God, I have no idea how to live life. I can, I can see down the road a couple of years and it's going to be a train wreck. So take my life, teach me how to live it. And that's exactly uh, the path that I followed from that point on. And the more I followed that path, the more it solidified that, hey, this is, this is a healthy direction to go. And I just kept following it um, to the point where uh, I decided to become a pastor, got schooling for that, and have been pastoring for the past 15 years, first for uh, high school kids, because that's when my life was changed. And I wanted to, to help students uh, in that area of their life. And now I'm a, a senior pastor at a church that we planted in Orange County. Uh, California that really does a great job of reaching out to people that uh, aren't your normal religious people, uh, but either had bad experiences with church or just church wasn't on their radar, but they were looking for something. And we just have created an environment that makes people like that feel comfortable. And I think that probably has a lot to do with just my past and who I naturally am. You know, I, it's not like my dad was a pastor and his dad was a pastor. And so now I'm I'm this guy that thinks everybody should think the way that I think. Uh, but instead, I, I understand where, where people are coming from and uh, just want to have the opportunity to hold out hope for them. So what were some of those negative traits or habits that you started to shed uh, in your late teens, early 20s? Yeah, well, uh, addiction was a, a big part of my household. Um, and so uh, as I started to go down that path, uh, I had to pull pull back on that very quickly. Um, I'm not not sure, uh, you know, what your podcast is rated, but pornography was also rampant in my household, um, and that was starting to have a, a negative hold on my mind and just how I viewed women um, being driven by anger uh, and letting anger fuel me. I've always been an achiever. Um, but you can achieve for all different kind of uh, motives. And my achievement was starting to be fueled by anger. And that can lead to a very dangerous place. So um, some things like that. Um, and then also, uh, I think, well, I know that uh, depression and mental illness uh, is very prevalent in my, um, in my family. Uh, my mother ended up uh, taking her life. And her grandfather did the same. Um, and it seems like everyone on my mom's side of the family, including me, has been touched by some form of depression or anxiety. Um, 
And so I knew I needed to find a way out of that. So when did your mom pass? Uh, that was, let's see, five years ago. Yeah, because my daughter was just born. She was uh, six months old. So, yep, five years ago. And then, oh, first of all, obviously, I, I'm, I'm sorry for, for your loss and for your family's loss in that regard. And, you know, two, like, two short years, one short year after that, that's when you were diagnosed with brain cancer, correct? Yeah, yeah. It was actually, at first, I was just diagnosed with a brain tumor. And they weren't sure if it was cancerous or if it was benign. Um, and so, but either way, it was, it was a very scary thing because I, out of nowhere, I, I started having seizures. And so I got into the doctor, they sent me for an MRI, MRI came back and there was a, uh, ping pong ball sized tumor, uh, right in, in the center of my brain. And so, uh, the, the doctors said, well, it looks like it has, you know, strong borders. So there's a, a good chance that it's benign, but we need to, uh, get it out of, of your brain because even a benign tumor, if left to itself, will eventually evolve into a cancerous tumor. And uh, the problem was that every brain surgeon that I met with uh, thought that the majority of the, the tumor was um, inoperable. So they might be able to get a little bit, but uh, they would leave behind quite a bit, which if you leave that type of tumor behind, it would evolve to be cancerous. Um, so the first diagnosis was just a brain tumor, not quite sure if it was cancerous or, or benign. And the strategy was to go in and to remove the tumor through surgery. And the stakes were basically, if we get it all, then you have a chance of a normal life expectancy. If we don't get it all, then your life will be shortened significantly. Um, and it was really tough to find a surgeon who felt like, they had a shot at getting it all. And it turned out that one surgeon that I met with said, listen, Jay, there's, there's five guys in the world right now that are qualified to perform this surgery. And he said, let me make a call to one of them and see if he will take you on. And sure enough, uh, this surgeon was up in San Francisco and uh, the, the surgeon that I was meeting with made a, a personal phone call to him. And next thing I know, I was on a plane the next day going up to meet with this surgeon. And uh, he said, you know, this will be risky, um, but I think that I can do it and I can do it safely. And I have the best chance of removing the entire tumor. And when you first hear that, you know, what was that process like going from, hey, we found the reason why I'm having these seizures. Okay. It doesn't sound like it's you know, going to be cancerous, we can get rid of it. And then it quickly evolving to like, all right, like the realities of what surgery entails and what recovery entails and just the uncertainty surrounding all of that. Yeah. That in the very beginning, when I, when I heard that I had a brain tumor and was going to need surgery, I mean, that, that hit me like a ton of bricks. I can remember uh, I got a call from, um, from a surgeon on a Sunday. So I just uh, preached a sermon, came home, got a phone call. And, uh, you know, he was very straightforward and said, I'm looking at your MRI right now and I see a significant size tumor and we're going to need to, to surgically remove that. And um, it just hit me, knocked the wind out of me. And I asked him a few questions, uh, set up an appointment and then walked upstairs uh, to where my wife 
was in our bedroom and she had just put on a new dress that she had bought. And she asked me, um, Hey, would you, would you zip up the back of this dress? And so I, I zipped up the back of the dress and then I just said to her, honey, I just got off the phone with the doctor and I have a brain tumor. And we just collapsed into each other and, and fell on, on the bed and cried. Um, and then we had to pick each other up and start dealing with, with the facts and start searching for the right surgeon. And it, you know, it got scarier and scarier when we understood the stakes and we're having more and more of a difficult time finding a surgeon that would be able to perform this. But once we met with Dr. Berger at UCSF, uh, and he was able to explain things to us and, uh, and his confidence, uh, then all of a sudden there was hope. I knew it was risky and I had no idea what was going to uh, be on the other side of, of the surgery. Um, but there was a, a strong, strong hope. Um, but the thing that freaks me out the most is he, he said, you know, I, I can do this, but to give us the best chance, uh, I'm going to need to have you awake for four hours of the surgery. Oh, and, gosh. <laughs> yeah, I went white as a ghost and he could tell. He could tell. He said, you know, uh, if you're comfortable with it, he said, I can do it with you asleep, but it greatly increases our chances of having a successful surgery if you're awake. And I had seen horror films that depicted scenes like this. And I, my mind just went directly to those films. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, thinking it over and I did some research uh, in medical journals that basically said, hey, with this specific tumor in this specific location, uh, patients must have awake craniotomies in specialty centers. And I thought, well, there's no other, there's no other option. I've got to, I've got to do this. So I got to face this fear and, uh, go forward with it. See, what I'm imagining right now is the, like, for me, my own personal fear, and I'm not going to compare them here, certainly, my own personal fear, like when I'm sitting there, like in the dentist chair for like that four minutes, right, where they're like either doing a cavity or they're they're poking around, like every little pick and the little, little pinprick of a thing, I'm like freaking out about, I'm, I'm a ball of nerves and anxiety. Now I'm trying to imagine being in that situation, but instead of it being four minutes, being four hours, which with obviously much more dire circumstances than, hey, how's my back, you know, my back molar doing? <laughs> right, right. And my my initial fear was the, the way that they were going to approach it is they would put me under and then uh, they would, um, you know, pull back my scalp, remove a big chunk out of my skull, kind of like a jack-o'-lantern. And uh, once they got in there, uh, they would wake me up because all of that first part, there's a ton of nerves and a lot of pain that could be associated with that. But once they get into the brain, there's no pain receptors in the brain. There's no nerves that you have to worry about. Um, but my biggest fear was that they would wake me up and I would freak out and have an anxiety attack, a panic attack, uh, have trouble breathing. Um, and, uh, and he, you know, he just reassured me. He said, I've never had anybody do that on my table. I've done this many times and we'll walk you through it and you're going to be okay. And so once I decided that I was going to go through with it, um, then, 
you know, I turned to the same place I turn often, which is to prayer. And I prayed through it. And it was amazing how I went from so much anxiety to really honestly being in a place of peace. And the night before the surgery, um, I went to bed at 10 p.m., fell right asleep, slept through the entire night, um, woke up the next morning ready to go. And I wasn't feeling anxious going in. And even um, even as the surgeon rolled me back into the operating room, you know, I just uh, I was talking with him and, and making some jokes and told him, uh, hey, don't worry, doc, we got thousands of thousands of people praying for us. And he, you know, he laughed at that. Um, and then uh, sure enough, put me under and I woke up and I didn't freak out. Instead, it kind of felt like like almost this awesome opportunity where I got to do something that not many people in this world get to do. And as I woke up, everything had this um, ultra realism because the surgical lights were so bright and I could see everything with such clarity. You know, I could see the entire attending team uh, working the different machines, the anesthesiologist coming over, checking my pupils, talking with me. I could see uh, uh, attendants working on the brain mapping system um, that in very real time was mapping what was going on in my brain. And I could hear everything with uh, crystal clarity. And, you know, the, the first thing the surgeon said to me is, hey, Jay, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing OK. I'm doing well, doing well. And he um, he said, OK, well. Uh, we spent the last couple of days mapping your brain and now we're going to make sure that, uh, everything is accurate. So he said, so I'm going to take this electrode. I'm going to press on different, uh, parts of your brain and I'm going to ask you some questions and I just need you to respond. And so he would push on one part and say, Hey, can you feel that in your leg? And I said, yeah, yeah, I can feel that in my leg. And he'd push on another, another part and say, what color is your hair? And I'd said, brown. And then he'd push on another part and say, can you feel that in your, in your mouth? And, and it felt like my tongue was swelling up. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can, I can feel that. <laughs> Even though obviously it wasn't swelling up. It just, it was so bizarre how, how that worked. And I just, I kind of felt like if somebody had given me the opportunity to go to the moon, that's a risky endeavor, but I would probably accept that invitation. And I felt in that moment, as the, the surgery was happening, I felt like, this is kind of like getting the opportunity to go to the moon. This is, I'm, I get to experience science at its greatest. Um, and so I was, I was able to relax during the whole thing, take in the experience. And then I, I do remember there was, there was one point where I could tell he was transitioning from the outer part of the tumor and going to head into the interior part of my brain, which is where, the uh, the real risk was there was um, a big blood vessel that was very difficult to navigate around. And that's what all the other surgeons were too afraid to tackle um, because it takes such precision. Uh, and if that blood vessel was broken, I would have a stroke um, and would have very detrimental uh, results. You know, I might come out paralyzed. I might come out with some major brain damage. Um, he was working in the center of my brain, which controls a lot of your very fine motor skills and fine personality traits, your ability to relate to others, language, things like that. 
And I remember when he transitioned and I could tell he was, he was now going into the deeper portions of my brain. I remember the sense of feeling I have never been this out of control in my life. Everything rests in his hands right now. And uh, even with that thought, there was a piece to it. I was okay with that. I trusted him. I think I also uh, trusted God. Not that everything would turn out perfectly, but I, I trusted that no matter what was waiting for me on the other side, uh, God would give me the strength to deal with it. Um, and so there was peace in that. And so after four hours, uh, this the surgeon said to me, okay, Jay, I think uh, we've got all we've needed from you and uh, you can take a rest now. And they put me back under and I woke up. And the first thing that I saw when I came to was my wife. And the first thing I heard her say was, Jay, he got it all. He got the entire tumor. And it was this moment of such beauty. And it just felt so miraculous that he was able to do that. And there was so much hope. And it was like, I got my life back in that moment. And uh, the joy was overwhelming. And within a half hour, uh, I was up, I was walking, I was uh, filming YouTube videos, thanking everybody that had been praying for me and letting them know that the surgery was successful. And it took me about a year to recover from that surgery. And just about the time that I was 100% recovered from uh, the surgery, I had another seizure and went in for an MRI and turns out that a new tumor recurred. And so that then uh, told the medical community and myself that the tumor that I had wasn't benign. So even though they removed the entire tumor, there was microscopic uh, cancer cells throughout my brain that still remained that isn't, they're not visible to the human eye or by any technology. And so, um, yeah, a year after that very successful, miraculous surgery, uh, I then, I then met with, um, another seizure, another diagnosis. And now I'm told that I have, um, terminal brain cancer and given a prognosis of, uh, years to live and scheduled my second awake surgery with the same surgeon to try and remove as much as possible. And, uh, that was tough. So when you had that conversation with your doctors about the prognosis, Mm -hmm. um, that conversation in and of itself, you're there with your wife, I'm sure. And you're having this, you're, you're talking about this, how much certainty do they put into a prognosis like that versus how much variability is there? Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're always hesitant to say anything with certainty because um, there is so much unknown. They don't know what causes brain tumors and they don't know why some people uh, pass away well before the, the normal, the mean prognosis time, uh, the average. And they don't know why some people live well beyond that prognosis. And, uh, so they always kind of temper it with, hey, you know, this isn't, uh, this isn't exact, but here's on average what happens. 
to people who have your disease that are your age and in your uh, level of health, you know, you can expect these uh, a range from this year to this year um, to live. And so for me, it was um, it was seven to nine years. And, you know, I do the math real quick. How old would my daughter be? How old would I be? What's left? You know, what do I want to accomplish? All those things. Um, and yeah, it, uh, it hits really, really hard because, um, there, there have been enough people with this disease that, uh, have walked a, a very similar path and had the same end. And so you can't just discount what a doctor is saying to you and say, Oh, well, that's not going to be me. I'm going to be different than everybody else. You've got to take a very real look at that say, okay, this may be my reality. And then you also, or at least I need to, uh, in my personality, I need to find uh, hope that it could be different, that it doesn't have to be that, that there are people who um, outlive the prognosis. And I want to be one of those people. Earlier, you talked about having faith in certain things just because you, I mean, you can't control them, right? Having faith mm-hmm. in the doctor during the surgery is a great example of that. As you approach this prognosis and what you're going to do with your life, short-term and long-term, what were some of the things that you decided, all right, these are the things I have control over, not only in terms of how I want to live my life, but how I'm going to be the healthiest version of Jay Hewitt moving forward as I can be? What were some of those things that you identified? Well, first, when, when somebody hears, you know, somebody loves you and hears about this, uh, they want to solve it for you. And so they want to tell, you know, give you all these articles about, you know, how to how to beat terminal cancer and, and stuff. And a lot of it is, uh, you know, a wild goose chase. Um, and some of it's helpful. But uh, for me, I decided... Uh, early on that I'm going to eat well, uh, not because I think that uh, eating a perfect diet is going to cure me, but because I think that if I can supply my body with the nutrients that it needs, uh, it'll be able to respond to the treatment in the best way possible. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to, that I'm going to do. I believe that if I do that, it'll also show my wife and my daughter that I'm actively trying to fight. And so I thought, oh, this is a, a this can be a, a physical manifestation of that to just let them know I haven't given up hope. I'm, I'm still working on this. So my, my diet was, was one of the pieces. Um, my positivity was a second, you know, I knew that I needed to hold on to hope and I needed to uh, communicate my hope um, to my wife and daughter and not allow myself to, to give up mentally and to fall into, um, a depression. So, uh, my attitude was another thing that I chose. And then third is I knew if I was going to keep my attitude up, um, I was going to need to be exercising. Uh, when my father passed away suddenly of a heart attack, um, as I was going through that grief process, that was the first time that I had to deal with depression. And, uh, I, they, I went to talk therapy. They put me on, um, some medication. The medication really helped, um, me to get out of the funk that I was experiencing. 
But then I found that I could um, control my depression through exercise. So that was the first time that uh, I started going to the gym. I started running um, and it was good for me. And I was able to get off the medication and just use an appropriate level of, of exercise to help manage that. And so that became um, a normal part of my life where every morning I'd get up at six, I would go to the gym before I'd go to work. And it felt great whether I was out for a run or lifting weights. I felt like, okay, I've, I've accomplished something difficult in my day. Everything's downhill from here. I can, if I can do that, I can do anything else that the day throws at me. And it just, it made me feel good and accomplished from the very first part of my day. And it helped me to, uh, deal with all the different stresses of life and work and marriage and all that kind of stuff. And so I knew that if I was going to stay positive during this time, I was going to need to find a way to exercise, which I also knew was going to be very difficult because the side effects of the treatment that I was about to experience, you know, I was going to have to recover from another surgery. They were going to add upon that radiation and chemotherapy and I knew, oh, this is going to be tough, but I need to do it. So I committed to myself that I would exercise through that process. All right. And what kind of exercises did you choose? Well, running has always been uh, the best for me when it comes to managing stress. Um, I don't know the science behind that. Maybe you do. <laughs> but uh, it, uh, it has always released the endorphins that I need. Um, to really be able to handle all that life's throwing at me. And so I thought, okay, I definitely need to be running, uh, probably more than, than lifting weights. Although lifting weights is another great way to just kind of push the stress right out. But with um, just kind of what I've experienced, I knew running was going to need to be the thing. And so as I started to think about, okay, what do I want to accomplish in these next few years? One of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to teach my daughter resiliency. I wanted to teach her that life is going to knock you down sometimes. There's just no way to escape that. There, there's difficult seasons of life and life is going to knock you down. But I just wanted to teach her when life knocks you down, if you can, if you can find hope, get back up and press on towards your dreams. Anything is possible. And I felt like if I can, if I can instill that in her and what an opportunity to do that, because she's watching me, I've just been knocked down hard by life. If I could allow her to see me get up, find hope and press on and do the impossible. Um, and she'll be able to, to learn a lesson by watching me. And that's when I decided, um, I'm going to, I'm going to start training for Ironman. I'm going to see if I Whoa, can do Nelly. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Going from this guy who, you know, I'm, I'm not an athlete. I'm not, uh, you know, I haven't, I wasn't an athlete in high school or college. Uh, I, I'm a casual, uh, athlete in the fact that I, I use exercise to manage stress. Um, I'm in pretty good shape, but to, to just jump into, you know, a 140 mile race in you know under 17 hours. Uh, that was, that was big, but I, I just, I, I liked Ironman's, um, their whole motto of anything's possible. I thought, yeah, well, let's see, let's see. And I could remember, uh, back to when I was 10 years old, 
I saw Iron Man for the first time on TV, Wide World of Sports. And as I was watching these athletes, I was blown away. I thought they were superhuman. There's no way that people can swim two and a half miles and then ride 112 miles and then after that do a full marathon. That just seems in, incredible to me. And I was watching it happen. And as at 10 years old, the interesting thing was I, I never thought to myself, I want to do that. Because I was in an environment where you just didn't have those kind of thoughts. You didn't have those kind of dreams. And uh, so I do remember when my daughter was born, I, I had the idea of doing an Ironman when she was 10 years old. And I thought, you know, I want her to watch me do something extremely difficult. And I want to be able to say to her, honey, listen, you can do things like this. It doesn't have to be this, but whatever your dream is, you can do it. And your mom and I are standing behind you 100% to support you to do the hard work that it takes to do something like this. And so I had that thought when, when my daughter was born five years ago, and I thought I might do it when she's 10. I wasn't, I hadn't committed to it. It was just something in the back of my mind. And then when I got the prognosis, I thought, well, um, I should probably do it now. Uh, she's a little younger than I would like her to be because, uh, you know, who knows what things she'll be comprehending, but I do believe that it'll teach her a lesson and stick with her. And so I thought I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it for no other reason than to teach her what resiliency looks like. And also for myself to keep, uh, to keep the positivity and hope in front of me. And so I asked my wife, that's key. <laughs> I said, Hey honey, what do you think? Uh, this is a pretty major commitment, but what do you think? And she said, yes. And so then I went through my second surgery. I, uh, recovered for a month before I left for Houston, MD Anderson for radiation. And on the first day of radiation, I ran one mile on a treadmill and the second day of radiation, two miles. And after 30 treatments of radiation, I was running 20 miles on a treadmill. And oh uh, my gosh, Jay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which was which was insane. But it, uh, my body was feeling terrible. Uh, I was having, I was also on chemotherapy at that time uh, as well, and so I was feeling nauseous and headaches. But I would, I would feel fatigue and nauseous and these strong headaches before I would get on the treadmill. But then. Uh, I had other uncomfortable feelings <laughs> that come with running on a treadmill, but those other things disappeared and I felt normal and I felt thankful that my body could even move because, you know, with these high risk surgeries, there was a good chance that I'd be paralyzed. And so I found a real joy and thankfulness that came from it. So I just kept doing it. And then after, uh, after I finished my radiation therapy in Houston, I came back to California and I, I didn't know how to swim competitively. I grew up in California, so I grew up surfing. Can we, can and we, can we hold it there? Can we, can we pause yeah. before we get into the other sports? Because I don't want to gloss over this running thing. Because in going in one month from one mile to 20 miles on a treadmill, while going through all these treatments, you know, your body is under barrage of chemicals and radiation. It's just exhausting. And as someone who's been able to witness folks uh, fight through cancer and chemotherapy, um, people who are extremely energetic, who have endless, endless drive and see what it's done to them 
This is so hard for me to wrap my head around, and I'm sure you get this all the time. So what are, besides what you mentioned in terms of how your body felt on the treadmill, where you had some of the negative symptoms that you were going through would melt away and basically exchange them for the the running the running physical symptoms that all of us have experienced, <laughs> uh, whether on a treadmill or not on a treadmill. Um, and I can see that, I see how you'd want to make that trade any day of the week. Whether you'd want to make that trade or not, it still takes it's incredible to build up to 20 miles on a treadmill in such a short amount of time. What do you ascribe that build up to in light of all the things that your body was going through at the time? Yeah. So, you know, my body was conditioned to run, you know, three to six miles at a time. Um, before all this happened, you know, I'd be doing that a couple of times a week as part of my workouts. Um, and, but I had been, off my feet for quite a while, uh, recovering from surgeries and things like that. So, uh, there's a, a certain amount of, of muscle memory that just came back to me at least to get me up to six miles. And then to push past that, that was new territory for myself. Um, but I, I think a, a lot of it had to do with, um, my, my gratitude and feeling like I get to do this. My body can do this. Um, and so I think that, that kind of thankful posture helps, uh, to, to carry on and helps, especially in the morning when it, when you wake up and go, okay, time to go to the gym again. I don't want to go to the gym. And then I just remember, remind myself, this is going to be good. If you can get there, it'll be good. And, uh, so that helps. And then I would pray and I still do pray before every workout I work out. I train six times a week and before every training session, I just pray, all right, Lord, give me strength. And, um, you know, is there a, a supernatural strength happening? I don't know about that, but what I do know is it, it gives me a confidence that my body can do this. I'll listen to my body and if I need to stop, I'll stop. But, um, I was able to just keep adding, adding miles each day. And, um, yeah, and I made it. Now, would you view that uptick in mileage as almost like a proxy of sorts for um, basically the, the health within your own body? Like, all right, if I can keep if I can keep upping these miles, that just shows you know my my you know health or rehabilitation is going well and things like that. Or were you able to, or did you choose to kind of silo those efforts from the cancer recovery? Yeah, I so I think I'm I like this idea of having this grand experiment of can my body actually do this? Because um I get blood tests quite often that that show my white blood count and my red blood count um and they're always extremely low. So my immune system is very low, but also these are this is what's bringing oxygen to all my muscles in my body. And for endurance athletes, that's key to improving and being able to uh, continue for long uh, periods of time of exercise. And so it's almost like I'm going through a reversed um, blood doping, where instead of adding oxygen into my bloodstream, I have less oxygen. And so I just, I'm fascinated with can my body do this? Um, when I started, Right before I started training, I went and got, uh, 
you know, an official VO2 max test where they, they hook you up to all the different uh, monitors and, and things of that sort. And I'm interested to go back right before uh, the Ironman race uh, after I've done all this training and see if my VO2 max has actually improved at all, or if I've just been able to maintain during this time, or if it's even dipped down. Uh, I've got a great coach that's coaching me through it. That's watching all of the data and doing all, you know, helping me make sure I don't overtrain and overdo it. But at the same time that I'm making gains forward, but it's just this, this fascination with can, can I keep going? Can I keep going even though there's all these negative things that are happening to my body? Um, can I go? And so far, the answer has been yes. Uh, the ultimate test will be race day. And can I get to the starting line healthy? And then can I actually push through uh, the 140 miles and cross the finish line? And that's yet to be seen. All right. So when is race day? Well, we'll see. With this pandemic, race day was supposed to be <laughs> in May in Australia, but that got canceled. Um, and so now uh, I'm registered for Ironman Santa Rosa in California, uh, which has a, a nice uh, run and bike track through the vineyards. So that'll be nice. But um, that was supposed to be July 25th. That got postponed now to uh, October 17th. And so I'm hoping that that race goes through. Now, just yesterday, California's governor just took a major step back and closed a lot of things that had recently been reopened. And so we'll see if that affects this sporting event. But Ironman has, has been pretty good about figuring out how to be safe in their competitions and how to be appropriate during this time. So I'm hoping that the the city of Santa Rosa will allow the race to happen and, and that our uh, state government will allow it to happen so that I can race on the 17th. Cause it's hard to have a moving target when it comes to race day. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So I, I want to dive into all the training stuff that you're currently doing, but that would take an entire episode. So Jay, <laughs> any chance we can get you back on in the fall? Yeah, I would love it. That'd be great. All right. In the meantime, where can people learn more about you? You're putting out stuff all the time. I've touched on like 3% of what you got going on. This is almost like a general introduction to all of the amazing things that you are doing, that your family is doing, and just the things that you're capable of. And it, it truly is extraordinary. For me, it's extremely motivating and inspirational and aspirational in so many ways. And I would love for people to learn more about you and what you're up to. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think probably the best place right now is my um, Instagram page. So at Jay Hewitt, that's J-A-Y-H-E-W-I-T-T. Um, and that's probably the best place to to monitor my progress and what I'm doing, uh, both training and how it's affecting my family and the connection I have with my daughter. Um, so Instagram seems to be the best place to do that right now. Um, you know, you can follow me on Facebook as well, but Facebook has just gotten so, uh, political and so opinionated that, uh, I think Instagram's a little better platform for following a, a journey like this. Um, I also have a lot of stuff on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash Jay Hewitt. 
different videos and such. But um, I'm kind of putting that on pause right now because a uh, a studio from London got got a hold of my story and uh, they want to do a documentary with me featuring me. And so there's been a lot of filming there. So I've kind of taken a, a pause from YouTube because I've been working on this production uh, for this documentary. So probably the best right now would be Instagram. Jay, of course they want to do a documentary on you, man. Like I can't wait to have you back. I can have you <laughs> on every month and have plenty of stuff to talk about. It would be a pleasure to do so. You're such an awesome guy. And I can see why so many people are gravitated to you in so many ways. So again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, thanks so much, Matt. Would love to be back on again. Great to talk with you. Jay, oh my goodness. Thank you so much. This could have easily gone double the length. We didn't have time for that. I can't wait to have Jay back on in a couple months to talk about his training. As you know, we didn't talk a lot about the training this time, uh, but we'll definitely get there. This guy is absolutely uh, crushing the training which is amazing, all things considering when he was telling the treadmill story. Oh my gosh, that one just simply blew me away. I just could not believe it. So thank you so much. Thank you also, of course, to Prevenex for sponsoring every episode here on the Rambling Runner podcast. If you haven't tried Prevenex yet, what are you waiting for? You get a 30-day guarantee if you don't like it, you're gonna like it. I can tell you that, and only they sponsor my show, they sponsor Lindsay Hines' show, right? I'll have another with Lindsay Hine. Why is that? We both trust Prevenex. I'm going to speak for Lindsay here because I know Lindsay. And she'll say the same thing. And she says it on her show. Prevenex is the real deal. Use code RUNNER15 at checkout to save 15% off your first order. Believe me, you're going to be glad you did. Also, big news coming out of the Rambling Runner podcast. Very very soon. I cannot wait to tell you what's going to happen. In the meantime, head over to theramblingrunner.com. That's theramblingrunner.com. Sign up for the newsletter. It's coming out every Tuesday. It's called The Three Things That I'm Loving, a book, a podcast, a video coming out every week. It's been fun to do. I'm getting a lot of great responses from it. It's really short. Won't take much time out of your day to read it. And hopefully you like it. And if you like this show, then usually you'll like the things that I like or the things that I'm consuming. Um, That's for sure. A lot of them are running related, but some of them aren't. So it usually is a kind of wide range of things. In addition, on that newsletter, I'm going to be announcing something big in two weeks, something big, maybe not two weeks, maybe it's a week and a half from when this episode comes out, but you're not going to want to miss it. So go to theramblingrunner.com, sign up for the newsletter today. So thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.